Section 9 of The Chorus Girl and Other Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Arnold The Chorus Girl and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov Translated by Constance Garnett Section 9 At a Country House Pavel Ilyich Rashevich walked up and down, stepping softly on the floor covered with little Russian plaids, and casting a long shadow on the wall and ceiling, while his guest, Meyer, the deputy examining magistrate, sat on the sofa with one leg drawn up under him, smoking and listening. The clock already pointed to eleven, and there were sounds of the table being laid in the room next to the study. "'Say what you like,' Rashevich was saying. "'From the standpoint of fraternity, equality, and the rest of it, Mitka the swineherd is perhaps a man the same as Goethe and Frederick the Great. But take your stand on a scientific basis. Have the courage to look the facts in the face, and it will be obvious to you that blue blood is not a mere prejudice, that it is not a feminine invention. Blue blood, my dear fellow, has a historical justification, and to refuse to recognise it is, to my thinking, as strange as to refuse to recognise the antlers on a stag. One must reckon with facts. You are a law student and have confined your attention to the humane studies, and you can still flatter yourself with illusions of equality, fraternity, and so on. I am an incorrigible Darwinian, and for me words such as lineage, aristocracy, noble blood are not empty sounds. Rashevich was roused and spoke with feeling. His eyes sparkled, his pince-nez was not stay on his nose. He kept nervously shrugging his shoulders and blinking, and at the word Darwinian, he looked jauntily in the looking-glass, and combed his grey beard with both hands. He was wearing a very short and shabby reefer jacket and narrow trousers. The rapidity of his movements, his jaunty air, and his abbreviated jacket, all seemed out of keeping with him, and his big comely head, with long hair suggestive of a bishop or a veteran poet, seemed to have been fixed onto the body of a tall, lanky, affected youth. When he stood with his legs wide apart, his long shadow looked like a pair of scissors. He was fond of talking, and he always fancied that he was saying something new and original. In the presence of Meyer, he was conscious of an unusual flow of spirits and rush of ideas. He found the examining magistrate more sympathetic, and was stimulated by his youth, his health, his good manners, his dignity, and above all by his cordial attitude to himself and his family. Rashevich was not a favourite with his acquaintances. As a rule, they fought shy of him, and as he knew, declared that he had driven his wife into her grave with his talking, and they called him behind his back, a spiteful creature and a toad. Meyer, a man new to the district and unprejudiced, visited him often, and readily, and had even been known to say that Rashevich and his daughters were the only people in the district with whom he felt as much at home as with his own people. Rashevich liked him too, because he was a young man who might be a good match for his elder daughter, Genya. And now, enjoying his ideas and the sound of his own voice, and looking with pleasure at the plump but well-proportioned, neatly-cropped, correct Meyer, Rashevich dreamed of how he would arrange his daughter's marriage with a good man, and then how his worries all over the estate would pass to his son-in-law. Hateful worries! The interest owing to the bank had not been paid for the last two quarters, and fines and arrears of all sorts had mounted up to more than two thousand. To my mind there can be no doubt, Rashevich went on, growing more and more enthusiastic, that if Richard Coeur de Lyon or Frederick Barbarossa, for instance. is brave and noble, those qualities will pass by heredity to his son, together with the convolutions and bumps of the brain, 
and if that courage and nobility of soul are preserved in the son by means of education and exercise, and if he marries a princess who is also noble and brave, those qualities will be transmitted to his grandson, and so on, until they become a generic characteristic and pass organically into the flesh and blood. Thanks to a strict sexual selection, to the fact that high-born families have instinctively guarded themselves against marriage with their inferiors, and young men of high rank have not married just anybody, lofty spiritual qualities have been transmitted from generation to generation in the full purity, have been preserved, and as time goes on have, through exercise, become more exalted and lofty. For the fact that there is good in humanity, we are indebted to nature, to the normal, natural, consistent order of things, which has throughout the ages scrupulously segregated blue bloods and plebeian. Yes, my dear boy, no low lout, no cook's son has given us literature, science, art, law, conceptions of honour and duty. For all these things mankind is indebted exclusively to the aristocracy, and from that point of view, the point of view of natural history, an inferior Sobekovich, by the very fact of his blue blood, is superior and more useful than the very best merchant, even though the latter may have built fifteen museums. Say what you like. And when I refuse to shake hands with a low lout or a cook's son, or to let him sit down at a table with me, by the very act I am safeguarding what is the best thing on earth, and am carrying on one of Mother Nature's finest designs for leading us to perfection. Rishevich stood still, combing his beard with both hands. His shadow, too, stood still on the wall, looking like a pair of scissors. Take Mother Russia now, he went on, thrusting his hands in his pockets and standing first on his heels and then on his toes. Who are her best people? Take our first-rate painters, writers, composers. Who are they? They're all of aristocratic origin. Pushkin, Lermontov, Turgenev, Gotcharov, Tolstoy. They were not Sexton's children. Gotcharov was a merchant, said Meyer. Well, the exception only proves the rule. Besides, Gotcharov's genius is quite open to dispute. But let us drop names and turn to facts. What would you say, my good sir, for instance, to this eloquent fact? When one of the mob forces his way to where he has not been permitted before, into society, into the world of learning, of literature, into the Zemstvo, or the law courts, observe nature herself, first of all, champions the higher rights of humanity, and is the first to wage war on the rabble. As soon as the plebeian forces himself into a place he is not fit for, he begins to wail, to go into consumption, to go out of his mind and to degenerate. And nowhere do we find so many puny, neurotic wrecks, consumptives and starvelings of all sorts as among these darlings. They die like flies in autumn. If it were not for this providential degeneration, there would not have been a stone left standing of our civilization. The rabble would have demolished everything. Tell me, if you please, what has the inroad of the barbarians given us so far? What has the rabble brought with it? Rashevich assumed a mysterious, frightened expression and went on. Never has literature and learning been at such a low ebb as among us now. The men of today, my good sir, have neither ideas nor ideals, and their sayings and doings are permeated by one spirit, to get all they can and to strip someone in his last thread. All these men of today, who give themselves out as honest and progressive people, can be bought at a rouble apiece, and the distinguishing mark of the intellectual of today is that you have to keep strict watch over your pocket when you talk to him or else he'll run off with your purse. Rushevich winked and burst out laughing. Upon my soul he will, he said, in a thin, gleeful voice. 
And morals. What of their morals? Rushevich looked round towards the door. No one is surprised nowadays when a wife robs and leaves her husband. What's that? A trifle. Nowadays, my dear boy, a chit of a girl of twelve is scheming to get a lover, and all these amateur theatricals and literary evenings are only invented to make it easier to get a rich merchant to take a girl on as his mistress. Mothers sell their daughters, and people make no bones about asking a husband what price he sells his wife, and one can haggle over the bargain. You know, my dear. Meyer, who had been sitting motionless and silent all the time, suddenly got up from the sofa and looked at his watch. I beg your pardon, Pavel Ilyich, he said. It's time for me to be going. But Pavel Ilyich, who had not finished his remarks, put his arm round him, forcibly reseating him on the sofa, vowed that he would not let him go without supper, and again Meyer sat and listened, but he looked at Rashevich with perplexity and uneasiness, as though he were only now beginning to understand him. Patches of red came into his face, and when at last a maidservant came in to tell them that the young ladies asked them to go to supper, he gave a sigh of relief and was the first to walk out of the study. At the table in the next room were Rashevich's daughters, Genya and Areda, girls of four and twenty, and two and twenty respectively, both very pale with black eyes and exactly the same height. Genya had her hair down, and Areda has hers done up, high on her head. Before eating anything, they each drank a wine glassful of bitter liqueur, with an air as though they had drunk it by accident for the first time in their lives, and both were overcome with confusion and burst out laughing. Don't be naughty, girls, said Rashevich. He wanted to be talking himself, and if other people talked in his presence, he suffered from a feeling like jealousy. So that's how it is, my dear boy, he began, looking affectionately at Meyer. In the simplicity and goodness of our hearts, and from fear of being suspected of being behind the times, we fraternise with, excuse me, all sorts of riffraff. We preach fraternity and equality with moneylenders and innkeepers. But if we would only think, we should see how criminal that good nature is. We have brought things to such a pass that the fate of civilization is hanging on a hair. My dear fellow, what our forefathers gained in the course of ages will be tomorrow, if not today, outraged and destroyed by these modern Huns. After supper they all went into the drawing-room. Genya and Areda lighted the candles on the piano, got out their music, but their father still went on talking, and there was no telling when he would leave off. They looked with misery and vexation at their egoist father, to whom the pleasure of chattering and displaying his intelligence was evidently more precious and important than his daughter's happiness. Maya, the only young man who ever came to their house, came, they knew, for the sake of their charming, feminine society. But the irrepressible old man had taken possession of him and would not let him move a step away. Just as the knights of the West repelled the invasions of the Mongols, so we, before it is too late, ought to unite and strike together against our foe. Rashevich went on in the tone of a preacher, holding up his right hand. May I appear to the riffraff not as Pavel Ilyevich, but as a mighty menacing Richard Coeur de Lyon. Let us give up sloppy sentimentality, enough of it. Let us all make a compact, so that as soon as a plebeian comes near us, we fling some careless phrase straight in his ugly face. Pause off, go back to your kennel, you cur. Straight in his ugly face. Rashevich went on gleefully, flicking his crooked finger in front of him. In his ugly face. I can't do that, Maya brought out, turning away. Why not, Rashevich answered briskly, anticipating a prolonged and interesting argument. Why not? because I am of the artisan class myself.
As he said this, Maya turned crimson, and his neck seemed to swell, and tears actually gleamed in his eyes. My father was a simple workman, he said in a rough, jerky voice, but I see no harm in that. Rushevich was fearfully confused, dumbfounded as though he had been caught in the act of a crime. He gazed helplessly at Maya, and did, know what, did not know what to say. Genya and Areda flushed crimson, and bent over their music. They were ashamed of their tactless father. A minute passed in silence, and there was a feeling of unbearable discomfort, when all at once, with a sort of painful stiffness and inappropriateness, there sounded in the air the words, Yes, I am of an artisan class, and I am proud of it. Thereupon Maya, stumbling awkwardly among the furniture, took his leave, and walked rapidly into the hall, though his carriage was not yet at the door. You'll have a dark drive tonight, Rushevich muttered, following him. The moon does not rise till late tonight. They stood together on the steps in the dark, waited for the horses to be brought. It was cool. There's a falling star, said Maya, wrapping himself in his overcoat. There are a great many in August. When the horses were at the door, Rushevich gazed intently at the sky and said with a sigh, A phenomenon worthy of the pen of Flammarion. After seeing his visitor off, he walked up and down the garden, gesticulating in the darkness, reluctant to believe that such a queer, stupid misunderstanding had only just occurred. He was ashamed and vexed with himself. In the first place it had been extremely incautious and tactless on his part to raise the damnable subject of blue blood, without finding out beforehand what his visitor's position was. Something of the same sort had happened to him before. He had, on one occasion in a railway carriage, begun abusing the Germans, and it had afterwards appeared that all the persons he had been conversing with were German. In the second place he felt that Meyer would not come and see him again. These intellectuals who have risen up from the people are morbidly sensitive, obstinate and slow to forgive. It's a bad, it's bad, muttered Rushevich, spitting. He had a feeling of discomfort and loathing as though he had eaten soap. Ah, it's bad. He could see from the garden through the drawing room window, Genya by the piano, very pale and looking scared, with her hair down. She was talking very, very rapidly. Areda was walking up and down the room, lost in thought, but now she too began talking rapidly, with her face full of indignation. They were both talking at once. Mishevich could not hear a word, but he guessed what they were talking about. Ginya was probably complaining that her father drove away every decent person from the house with his talk, and today he had driven away from them their one acquaintance, perhaps a suitor, and now the poor young man would not have one place in the whole district where he could find rest for his soul. And judging by the despairing way in which she threw up her arms, Areda was talking probably on the subject of their dreary existence, their wasted youth. When he reached his own room, Rashevich sat down on his bed and began to undress. He felt oppressed, and he was still haunted by the same feeling as though he had eaten soap. He was ashamed. As he undressed, he looked at his long, sinewy, elderly legs, and remembered that in the district they called him the Toad, and after every long conversation he always felt ashamed. Somehow or other, by some fatality, it always seemed to have happened that he began mildly, amicably, with good intentions, calling himself an old student, an idealist, a Quixote, but without being himself aware of it, gradually passed into abuse and slander, and what was most surprising, with perfect sincerity, criticised science, art and morals, though he had not read a book for the last twenty years, had been nowhere further than their provincial town, and did not really know what was going on in the world. If he sat down to write anything, if it were only a letter of congratulation, there would somehow be abuse in the letter. And all this was strange, because in reality he was a man of feeling, given to tears. 
Could he be possessed by some devil which hated and slandered him, apart from his own will? It's bad, he sighed, as he lay down under the quilt. It's bad. His daughters did not sleep either. There was a sound of laughter and screaming, as though someone was being pursued. It was Ginya in hysterics, and little later a raider was sobbing too. A maid servant ran barefoot up and down the passage several times. What a business, good lord, muttered Rashevich, sighing and tossing from side to side. It's bad. He had a nightmare. He dreamt he was standing naked, as tall as a giraffe, in the middle of the room, saying, as he flicked his finger before him, In his ugly face, his ugly face, his ugly face. He woke up in a fright, and first of all remembered that a misunderstanding had happened in the evening, and that Maya would certainly not come again. He remembered, too, that he had to pay the interest at the bank, to find husbands for his daughters, that one must have food and drink, and close at hand were illness, old age, unpleasantness, that soon it would be winter, and there was no wood. It was past nine o'clock in the morning. Rashevich slowly dressed, drank his tea and ate two hunks of bread and butter. His daughters did not come down for breakfast. They did not want to meet him, and that wounded him. He lay down on his sofa in his study, then sat down at his table and began writing a letter to his daughters. His hand shook and his eyes smarted. He wrote that he was old and no use to anyone, that nobody loved him, and he begged his daughters to forget him, and when he died to bury him in a plain deal coffin with, without ceremony, or to send his body to Harkov in the dissecting theatre. He felt that every line he wrote reeked of malice and affectation, but he could not stop, and he went on writing and writing. The toad, he suddenly heard from the next room. It was the voice of his elder daughter, a voice with a hiss of indignation. The toad. The toad, the younger one repeated like an echo. The toad. End of section 9.